Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us Mr. Shane Claiborne. Welcome to the show, Shane. The show, Shane. Yeah, man. For me to say. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm for, I'm coming at you from Toledo, Ohio. Yeah. Toledo. And you've been on a bus down by the river <laughs> for four weeks now? That's Where, right, yeah. Tell me about the bus. Man, I don't know if people can see it, but uh, it is a school bus conversion to tiny house with solar panels and a composting toilet. Uh, it's quite the uh, uh, wow. outfit here. So we've been, we've been like going... 10, probably like 10 different, uh, uh, we, we've been on the road for like 37 cities is what we're doing. So, wow, that, that's unbelievable. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I told, I just told you a second ago, I don't think my marriage uh, could survive that because I think my <laughs> wife would want to get rid of me pretty quickly after that much time in a very small space. So congratulations on having what seems to be a thriving marriage. A thriving marriage. Well, this is he's talking about you, honey. Yeah, she's right here. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we're enjoying living in a, a, a bus. She said she's going to write a book, uh, Finding Your Bus Life Now, and we, we're on it, man. Yeah, boom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're in uh, Toledo, Ohio, but you usually are based in Philadelphia, where you've been for many years. But anyone who has an acute, well, not just anyone who has ears knows that your accent is not from Philadelphia. No, I'm it's total. Not- I'm totally Tennessee boy. Yeah, I grew up in East Tennessee, uh, outside the Smoky Mountains. Listen to this. My great great grandfather was the postman by horseback uh, in the wow. mountains up there. So I'm, I'm, I got mountain people, moonshine people, probably down there. And uh, yeah, but I've been in Philly for um, 20 years, and that so I've, it's beautiful to sort of have two homes. Yeah, I was born in Philadelphia, lived there till I was 12, and there wasn't one person that I knew in Philadelphia who sounded like you. <laughs> Not one. Well, yeah, uh, so I, you know, I married a North Carolina woman, so I guess we keep each other's uh, Southern accents going pretty good. Well, it, it's impressive that you've kept that for two decades while living in Philadelphia. <laughs> and the, the accent sounds great. I mean, it's, it's really good. Um, the bus looks great, but one thing that I'm still heartbroken about is the uh, the haircut you took. I guess it's been a few years now, but when you cut the dreads off, uh-huh. that's, I mean, I, I had dreads when I was in college, and so I've always had an affinity for people with dreadlocks, and then you just, they're gone. And do you feel like part of your soul, like like uh, like Samson, like when your hair is gone, your strength, your your social justice power has been evaporated? I, you know, maybe I worried about that for a minute, but then when they were gone, I was everything was okay. You know, everything was okay. I'll tell you the full story, though. When I... Um, I went to visit uh, Kabul in Afghanistan. I was visiting a group of young people there, uh, the Afghan Peace Volunteers. They're an incredible group of young folks that uh, I had heard about. So I got to go over there, and uh, they're like, oh, and about the hair. Uh, we don't really do that here. You need to cut that off. And I was like, oh, because I'll stand out as an American. They're like, no, more like the extremists. Some of them have uh, the long hair. So I was like, you know, grab the scissors and we, we got her done. And then, but then I did, I did, there is, you know, I could have grown them back, but I worked out a deal with uh, Katie. Hold on, hold- <laughs> they thought you were going to be an extremist in Afghanistan if you had long hair. So that's why well, you cut them. I've, it's wow. just, it's just like not culturally something you see much, I guess, you know? So, um, 
I, I, I uh, cut the old hair, and then my wife kind of liked it, so she said, every week you leave it off, I'll give you a, a hour-long back massage. So that was working pretty good wow. for me. So I've been, been kind of keeping that going a little bit. You're a pretty good negotiator. Um, I cut mine off because I married the daughter of a Texas high school football coach, and before I met him, I figured it would probably make the conversation a little bit easier. But I never worried that anyone was, was going to assume that I was a terrorist. And so in that way, we have divergent paths. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, so you, you had dreadlocks, is that what you're saying, Luke? I did, yeah. Yeah, I uh, had them. Uh, you got to show me a picture. I, I will send you some. I found one from my senior year of college that I posted on, online not too long ago. I'll send it to you afterwards. But uh, yeah, back in the good old days. But they're, they're so gone So Mike, Micah Borne, he's been, he's a spoken word artist, incredible poet. He um, has been on this trip with us. And he found, we, we stayed at my mom's and he found like old pictures of me when I was a child model. And he put them on the uh, <laughs> social media. So um, it's been like, it's been a rough month. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, but anyway, yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll have I, to find those. Before this, I had like two haircuts in twenty years or something. So yeah, mm-hmm. de- definitely. Uh, it's nice. So I'm enjoying the the short hair look. I'm much more aerodynamic on my bike and stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You look very Lance Armstrongish to me right now. Just like phew, you could easily take over Tour de France right now. Uh, I'm glad okay. we're talking about the deep stuff. Everything going on in the world, and you're talking about my dreadlocks, man. Well, you know, I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> It's either that or jump right into talking about guns. And I figure like it'd be easier just to talk about hair for a little while before we had to talk about guns. Fair enough. Because your last book was on the death penalty, wasn't it? Yes. I, and yeah. you know, I should say that I'm not really a single issue person. I, uh, I see the intersections of all these different things, but I am a champion of life. And um, that's why, you know, I did my last book on the death penalty, this one on guns. Um, uh because I've seen how narrow we define what it means to be pro-life in Christian America, you know, like pro-life um, is it, it, we, we've kind of narrowed that down so much to one issue that we would be more accurate in saying uh, that we're anti-abortion rather than pro-life because you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-war and still say you're pro-life <laughs> as long as you've got abortion rights. So, yeah, I, I want to be for life consistently and that means ending the death penalty ending gun violence uh caring for the environment welcoming immigrants caring about black lives you know so um all these are issues of life yeah the i heard a a phrase not so long ago from uh, a friend of mine who had a uh my friend jason who got his master's at notre dame and he says you know the catholics talk about a seamless garment of life or some some sort of expression like that and go that's I, I haven't processed that, but I really like that idea of, of everything is is connected to each other. And so, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not trying to say that you're one issue person. I, I mean, obviously, those are just the last two books that you've written. But it, it does seem like that is how we've digressed in our conversation about life and these issues. Totally. Uh, and I, I mean, it is, it, it, I love the seamless garment idea. I mean, there's a lot of parts of the church that have held to that consistent life ethic. Um, and... Um, you know, to be pro-life from the womb to the tomb, you know, the, the, that, that's really what I think we're talking about. And the early Christians had that life ethic. There's a great book Ron Sider wrote um, uh, called The Early Church on Killing, and he goes through every one of these hot-button issues and just shows how consistent the early Christians were with their ethic of life and with their um, their, their, uh, 
standing against violence in every form, you know, an iteration that it has. So uh, what I also found on these two issues in particular, gun violence and the death penalty, is that Christians in America are a part of the problem. You know, that po- old Pogo cartoon where it's like, we've met the enemy and it's us, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, like the death penalty wouldn't stand a chance in America if it weren't for Christians. And and that's the, yeah. the, the irony, you know, 85% of uh, executions happen in the Bible belt. The Bible mm. belt is the death belt. Um, and and uh, so, you know, um, it's very similar with guns. Two thirds of Americans live without guns, but 41% of white evangelical Christians have guns. So Christians are carrying guns at a higher rate than the general population. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's part of what really, um, compelled me to address these issues because they, they are social issues, but they're also reveal, I, can, I think, a deep uh, spiritual crisis and, and hole in our Christianity and in our theology. It, one of the things that was uh, very eye-opening to me was realizing that American Christians' attitude about the death penalty is com- it, not completely, but it seems to be the minority of global Christians' perspective on the death penalty. I remember talking to a friend uh, named Paul Nevson, who's a filmmaker, and he was doing something on uh, a story called the Bali Nine, which is a group of... Um, yep, absolutely. You story? I was very and connected I, to those guys, yep. Okay, so th- this is a friend of mine who's connected, or who was a Hillsong guy at the time, and uh, obviously still connected to those guys. And he, he was telling me about this, and I thought, aren't you going to get flack for doing something about the death penalty? He's like, Lou, no. Like, most people outside the United States, especially outside of Texas, uh, are going to have a completely different attitude about the death penalty than, than we do. So, um, again, yeah, it's, it's nice to, to get a bigger picture of what Christianity is saying about some of these issues. And one of, the, one of my, sh- my struggles is, I- I'm a pastor. I work at a church, and one of the things I love about our church is that there is political diversity that... To be a Christian doesn't mean that you vote left or right. It doesn't mean that those single, uh, that single decision determines if you're a Christian or not. And so one of the things that I, I love to do is try to embody what, uh, what Brian McLaren once said on the podcast, where he said, Christianity is political, but it's not partisan. Yeah, and so, absolutely. And, and so much of Christianity has become partisan, like that it's just one issue and that determines if you're in or out. And if you, if you don't vote this way, then that means you're not a good Christian or whatever. And so how do you have a conversation about guns in such a, a strife-filled, conflict-laden culture like ours without digressing into thinking that it's just a partisan issue, that Christianity just supports one party or the other. Yeah, totally. And before we get to the guns, I, I just want to say that this was true of the death penalty, too, is both leading candidates uh, in the last election— um, uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton were for the death penalty. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't like you really had a party that had a consistent ethic of life or a candidate that had a consistent ethic of life. And that's part of the problem. So um, it, similarly, and, and also, like you said, when you look at the rest of the world, the good news on the death penalty is that most of the world has abolished the death penalty. Um, and the only com- the company that we keep when it comes to the death penalty is China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, like these are the countries that continue to practice the death penalty. So that's not exactly the I've, champions of human rights, not the mm, best uh, company to no, keep. That, but. That, that doesn't make me feel, there are times that my... I, I think Jesus probably has one attitude on this, and I think there are other times that, or I, that I think that my attitude doesn't coincide with Jesus' attitude on this because of personal, you know, connection to people who uh, who have been uh, almost killed and, and people who have um, been the victims of crimes that led people to be on the death penalty. Um, 
but hearing that stat makes me go, hmm, like that, the team is not a good team to be on. Like that's not the team that you want to be with. When, <laughs> right. When that's what you're listing off. It's and not I, a good you know, I, I talked to my, I have a very conservative rabbi friend who says, you know, we don't agree on everything, but we're always really good talking partners, you know? And he goes, but the death penalty, man, we are spot on, like seeing eye to eye. He said, the, the irony is, um, that that Jew, the Jewish community did away with the death penalty. He said we did have it in the Hebrew Scripture, of course, but like mm-hmm. we made the uh, the criteria for executing someone so prohibitive that it almost never happened. And the rabbis always said, if we kill one person in two generations, then w- something's gone wrong with our society. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he said, so the irony is that it's Christians that are using the Jewish, you know, Hebrew scriptures, Text, yeah. the Old Testament, to justify the death penalty. And my rabbi friend goes, and you guys have the nagging problem of Jesus to deal with. <laughs> right? So, um, yeah. but you know, it's similar with guns. You kind of look at the gun and you go, man, um, Jesus said, love your enemy. And how is it that we can on the one hand, try to love our enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them. And we're not out there just like trying to take everybody's guns. I mean, I think what we're doing is, is much, it's, it's less, it's less about being anti-gun and more about being pro-life and how can we save lives. And I'm just really convinced that we've been better at protecting guns than protecting people. Um, and, and we can do a lot better job at uh, not saving every life, but saving a lot of lives. Right now, it's over 105 lives every day that are lost to guns in America. And that's unprecedented, you know, I- anywhere else in the industrialized world. Yeah. One of the things that I, I did want to emphasize when I was initially talking about your accent is to locate you as someone who grew up in, and I don't want to say like gun culture, but like I live in Texas, I, my my in laws have a ranch. Uh, shooting, uh, hunting is part of like the normal day to day experience for people where I live in Tennessee, where you live. I'm assuming it's just a, a, as common as drinking water to some degree to have a gun oh. around the house. And you tell stories about that in the book. But so yeah. you're you're not someone who didn't grow up around guns and see them as a normal part of life. I grew up frog gigging. You know what that is? Oh uh, yeah. Well yeah. Because you watch Duck Dynasty or something. Well, no, I, I, no, I've gone, no you, I've gone... You've gone frog gigging. No, I've actually gone flounder gigging, which I like more. But <laughs> That's awesome. it's different. It's different. So, But yeah, no, I grew up with guns. I was lethal to squirrels. I did a ton of squirrel hunting with my grandfather. I went, you know, he would always have me trying to shoot groundhogs that were eating the garden. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I grew up uh, very comfortable around guns. And we've got... You know, the the land of God and guns, you know, country music's from Nashville where we got songs yeah. that say, uh, this house is protected by the good Lord and a gun. And if you come uninvited, you'll meet them both, son. You know, that that's our world. So, um, but I, I also, you know, began to, when I moved to Philly, this young kid in our neighborhood said, why do we have so many gun shops in Philadelphia when there aren't that many deer? And you start to realize that, like that, you know, um, that that we've got a real gun problem in our our country when when it comes to you know like things like assault weapons. We've we've had so many gun owners that are concerned about gun violence, and that's one of the things that we found as we wrote the book is um, a, a overwhelming majority of gun owners want to see some changes happen when it comes to assault weapons and people that are, you know, on a no fly list, not getting, you know, they should also be on a no gun list, domestic abusers, um, background checks, you know, pretty common sense stuff that we would save a lot of lives. 
Yeah, there's a one of the themes in the book that that I found very eye opening. Uh, as someone who I, I wouldn't say I'm I'm the most knowledgeable about this subject matter, but you you told the story of the NRA and the way that they speak for a a vast minority of gun gun owners, five or ten percent. Yet, from someone who's kind of I, I don't own guns, I don't have a, uh, you know I'm around guns, but I've never owned one in my life. It's never been. So that's I'm really connected to. But if I was before reading your book to be asked the question of how much of the percentage of gun owners does NRA represent, I would think fifty percent or sixty percent, a large majority. But you're saying it's a small minority, and their attitudes are not consistent with the majority of gun owners consist uh, like attitudes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I would have said the same thing as you. You know, I, I think the NRA has. Um, colonized the narrative around guns and gun ownership. I mean, they kind of uh, um, have created the brand and, you know, but, but the thing is when they say we have 5 million members, what we also need to hear is that over 90% of gun owners then are not a part of the NRA. Um, And in fact, an overwhelming number of gun owners find themselves at odds with the NRA um, ideology and the uncompromising, um, uh, kind of rhetoric of the NRA. So that, I mean, those studies of, we, we cited a whole bunch of them, you know, but, um, um, yeah. And, and so I, that's encouraging. Now they do own a lot of the politicians. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's part of our problem. It's amazing. Uh, you know, Henry Ford said, tell me who profits from violence and I'll tell you how to stop it. Wow. Uh, so that's, I think that's certainly been true. And there are yeah. a lot of people that are making a lot of money off of that. Well, well I want to get to the economics of, uh, of guns in a second and the, and the backstory for that, but stay with the NRA for a second. Um, yeah, the, the, the stuff about if you're on the no-fly zone or you're a domestic uh, abuser, you've been convicted of that, and the ability to, to access weapons, that's mind-blowing to me. But the thing that kind of normalizes why that would happen are some of these quotes. Here's a quote from uh, J. Warren Cassidy, a former NRA executive, who said that we should approach the NRA as one of the world's great religions. And then you have another quote from uh, Charlton Heston, who was the uh, then president, I guess, of the NRA in 1988. He said, while holding up an anti antique musket he says sacred stuff resides in that wooden stock and blue steel when ordinary hands can possess such an extraordinary instrument and you go this language is is clearly more than just hey we like guns we like hunting you know there's something more going on here oh yeah and and you know so when we use the language of idolatry we are not being um that's not hyperbole you know i mean i think it's really from when Cassidy says, you know, approach us like one of the great religions, when you see the kind of God-like power that we attribute to guns, um, and we treat them with this this immunity that they can do no wrong, um, you know, you, you, you can't have too many guns. Um, you can only have too few guns. And, you know, you, you, you need guns to protect you from the bad people with guns. It's just kind of this, like, it just sounds a lot like someone trying to sell a bunch of guns, you know? And you're yeah. kind of like, man. Uh, but but the, I think the spirituality of that is um, so important because what, you know, I think true worship is, is when our worship of God changes who we are and makes mm-hmm. us act more like God in the world, you know, makes us loving and gentle and the things that fruits of the Spirit are. Um, but when our worship 
uh, attempts to change who God is to make God more like us, as George Bernard Shaw, Shaw said, God created us in his image and we decided to return the favor, you know, yeah, so we make God line. into an NRA, you know, white middle class Republican or something. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. Um, and our, our, our idolatry of guns, I think gets sort of unveiled in that. Um, um, and, and, um, so yeah, yep. I, I, that's why it's a spiritual crisis in the church as much as mm. it's a social crisis too. I see a lot of my friends, people that that I see, the way that they treat guns and the way that, you know, guns, uh, they have them, they take good care of them, and the way their ethic of gun ownership doesn't seem to... Doesn't seem to match kind of the the fervor that I like that I read about in the book, and so the, the people that I see with guns, I'm going, well, these people are responsible. You know, they lock them up, they take good care of them. What is a conversation with someone like that? Because it seems like there's the you tell these over the top stories of the guy who has a gun land where there's thousands of guns and and lo- uh, and weapons that can shoot a plane out of the sky, and you go, okay, clearly something is is different in this situation, but. The guy who has, or the gal who has guns for hunting, they take good care of them. What is the word for them? Where's the conversation including that experience? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, that's where we've had a lot of gun owners and law enforcement officers, all kinds of folks that come out to this. Because the fact is that gun violence doesn't discriminate. You know, I mean, it kills Republicans, Democrats, uh, you know. And so I think there's a lot of people concerned about guns. And there's a lot of responsible gun owners that have come out. Uh, to these events as we've been traveling across the country. Um, in fact, I had some of my earliest readers are gun owners that, uh, but they find themselves in um, at really at odds with the, the, the gun extremists, I would say, you know, that, that, that really um, think if, if they come for our AR-15s, they're going to come for our hunting rifles next. And there's a, there's a whole lot of people that don't believe that, you know, um, that, um, can look and see that when the Second Amendment was written, James Madison said uh, liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power, but liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. So one person's rights can infringe on another person's vitality. And so, I, you know, I think all that's uh, pretty important. And that's why when you look at some of these things like uh, I mean, you look at other technology um, like cars, you know, you have a license, you have inspections, you, if you make mistakes and hurt someone, you lose your license or you get on probation. You know, we just have the, the gun industry, which cars aren't designed to kill, even though they can, guns are, and yet they have this absolute immunity um, from any scrutiny or accountability. And, uh, you know, toy guns have more uh, uh, regulations than real guns. So if you shoot me with a Nerf gun and put my eye out, I can actually sue Nerf, but you can't do that with Bushmaster, you know, and that's, that's kind of, I think where a lot of people are like, Whoa. And why Dick sporting goods and other, other retailers are now going, you know, we're not even going to sell guns until we have a little bit more sensible, uh, regulations around them. And so I understand Dick sporting goods will like pull all their guns off the shelf and have like a $150 million hit for that. But that's why I think we've got to have a conversation that's more about conscience and not just about rights, you know, cause if this is, I mean, no one, I'm, I'm not, none of us are trying to overturn the second amendment, but we're just going, man, when the second amendment was written, guns shot one or two rounds a minute now they can shoot a hundred rounds a minute and people are really abusing that and taking a lot of life with these these weapons that are military style weapons when the conversation is conscience driven 
what would that cause to, to be different? If you're saying we need to have these conscience di- conversations based on your conscience. Yeah, well, one of the things that is true is that um, 5% of the gun shops are responsible for 90% of the crime guns. That's a stunning stat. So the worst of the worst, there's a few gun shops that make uh, literally make a killing off of these, uh, you know, bar, like uh, straw yeah. buyers and irresponsible gun shops. Uh, so we we've tar- you know, we went after a few of those in Philadelphia and had prayer vigils and tried to bring some attention to those. Two of our bi- you know biggest gun shops in Philly closed down, but it was never our goal to close them down. We were trying to get the owners to voluntarily sign on to um, a ten point code of ethics that was drafted by 300 mayors around the country that said this would cut down gun violence um, in our cities and, and they're really, really basic uh, requests, you know? So, I mean, I, I love to see people act out of their own heart and out of their own conscience. And um, that's why my go-to is not just to like regulate and pass a ton of laws, but I do think that um, policies can protect life, um, and we can do a better job at that. So I do think laws are a part of this, um, you know, that we, we do need to rethink some of our laws. Yeah, yeah obviously policies are, are important. Um, but someone who's vocationally does what I do as a pastor, it, it's not my job to put policies in place. It's not like I, I, I don't work at the Capitol. I, I work in, in a congregation. And so how do you think we can have conscience-driven conversations that don't steer into partisan politics where it's not... Um, all of a sudden, I become a parrot for the Republican or the Democrat talking points. Well, there, there's, there are a lot of folks that say it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. And what, what we really want, have been saying is that it's both, you know, and you can change laws and people will still find ways to hurt each other. Um, I mean, I look at New Zealand. And New Zealand, as we were, you know, a week into this tour, the tragedy in New Zealand happened and the country rose to the the occasion, you know, and they um, said, we don't need these military style weapons on our streets any more than we need grenades on our streets. But they also addressed the racism, the hatred, the Islamophobia that specifically in that attack targeted Muslims. So I think we can do both. And, and it is an obligation, I think, of pastors to address the the hatred um, and violence that's in our hearts. Um, but a part of loving our neighbor as ourself is, you know, concerning ourselves with the policies that affect our neighbors. And um, I mean, here's some basic ones. I mean, things like, could there be a limit on handguns to 12 per person per year? <laughs> Right. Every gun owner I know uh, personally thinks that's a great idea Um, that that uh, hold on. That's what it's called. One handgun a month. So it so allows the, one person to buy 12 handguns in a year. So no one's talking about like... Oh, hold on, hold on. I, I'm sorry, can I interrupt for a second? Do, yeah. Right now you can buy as many handguns as you want every year? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I'm telling you, when, when I say that there's, you know, the well-regulated of the Second Amendment is non-existent. Like, uh, so when they wrote well-regulated, I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah. they didn't have in mind, you know, folks that are um, doing... I mean, what we have right now is, is just absolute... Um, uh, free for all. And, and, you know, so I, yeah, I think that that's the kind of stuff that when people really see it, they go, 
oh yeah, we can do better than that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm taking the information from your book that the majority of people who are going to be the victim of uh, often the people who are victims of gun violence are going to be people who have been attacked by someone that they know, someone closest to them. Isn't that right? Isn't that something that you argue in the book, right? Yeah. And so, and so in some ways, like if you have 20 or if you have one, if, if there is that conflict, if, if you have an abuse in your background, the amount of guns you have to some degree wouldn't, would that make a difference? Is that the idea? Well, uh, what happens in, in many places is that it's almost like buying um, alcohol for a, to a, for a minor. You know, two folks will go into a gun shop. Often one of them is a woman. And the man will point out, I want three yeah, of yeah, that, yeah. two of that, one of that, because he can't buy guns. He's, you know, got, you got a record or whatever. And so uh, the, that's what we, you know, call straw purchasing. But, it, you know, when you see it, it's so obvious that, uh, and gun, gun owners know that. I mean, they'll, uh, gun, gun dealers, they'll see them exchange right outside the place or get in the car together or whatever. You know, so I think it's like the irresponsible gun shops. The fact that we don't even have access to information is part of it. So it's very difficult to know which gun shops are selling guns irresponsibly and be able to track that information because all that's been blocked. You know, it's very similar to like tobacco companies that didn't want any research on cancer because they might show that it's uh, bad for smoking, you know? Um, and, and yet that's exactly kind of the situation we find ourselves in with a lot of uh, uh, research that could show us how we could make our country safer. Yeah. It's been, been blocked by, by a lot of the gun industry. Yeah. You, you do some great work in doing some of the mythology behind our current attitude about guns. And you, you have this line um, about our attitude with, uh, with needing certain types of weapons uh, because of our distrust towards the government. And here's your, here's your question. You go, can you think of, an, uh, of other industrialized countries where the people live in such constant suspicion of their government that they are actively preparing to use bullets instead of ballots to change things? And you also trace the mythology of like the cowboy and how kind of where that comes from uh, and our fascination, how in some ways the, the cowboy mythology saved guns. But you, you look at some of these deep rooted stories that we tell. And I think maybe one of the reasons why we're so fascinated and in fear of government and thinking that if I had my certain type of weapon, then I can protect myself against my government is because that's the very genesis of our country is that like this is the story that we tell every 4th of July that we needed to take violent action to create who we are. And so, of course, we're going to retell the story in small ways and our attitudes and this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, and, and we, we drew on a lot of other scholars, uh, Pamela Haig from the, the, her book, The Gunning of America. So you look at that and you say, well, this isn't the history that really was, but it's the history that we wish it was. And so we, she calls it like we've retroactively fetishized the gun, you know, so we say that this was the gun that made the West, but really it's our mythology of the West that helped make the gun what it is because we we do but i mean even our own violent uh history we haven't dealt with that well you know i mean told the uh, been been honest about um the founding of this country and what we did to native americans and and uh, you know enslaved people and the gun played a massive role in that uh so much so that you know from reading it that some of the native americans um called them spirit weapons, spirit guns, because they said these must be from a malevolent deity. They're demonic. How could humans devise something so um, destructive of life, you know, without the help from, from a God? So, um, 
So that I think that history until we we can't get our future right until we get our history right. And I think that this kind of myth, this this founding um, uh, violence uh, is it continues to be a fault line in America, you know, and we we see that around uh, race and so many other things. But I think like the the guns, uh, they're a part of our our mythology of our country. Yep. And it's also in our I don't know if it, it because or it plays off of our demonizing of the other because you talked about some of the the ways that guns were marketed in involving Native Americans and there's created this fear of the other and so if you get a gun this is your way of keeping them away. Uh, there's also some peculiar stuff that. Um, now, to say one positive thing about the NRA, you did say that there was a chapter started so that, uh, so that African-Americans could arm themselves against the KKK. And so there's something about that that's positive, I, I guess, but there's also times that there were um, laws in which the, uh, I forget the, the terminology for it, but where African-Americans were given gun control laws forced against them, and the NRA had no issue about that. I think it was um, like 1876, where the NRA celebrated there was gun control against black people, but not against white people. And so- oh, yeah. I mean, we got to remember that as a lot of this was spreading, so this was uh, similar eras like the Dred Scott case, which mm-hmm. ruled that, you know, African-Americans have no rights that white people have to recognize, you know. And so when, you know, our, our African-Americans were considered, you know, three-fifths human, even in, the, in, in some of our founding documents, uh, Native Americans are called Indian savages, you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. There, there's all that there. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, and so the, some of the first gun control was championed by white gun owners that believed in gun control <laughs> when, it, yeah. when it meant controlling people of color, n- and namely natives and, and, and African-Americans from having guns. And that also continued, I mean, even uh, when the Black Panthers were marching on public property with open carry uh, weapons, you know, um, then white folks got really excited about gun control. So I think we got this kind of double standard um, and, uh, and and it's a, it's a very complicated history with uh, non-white folks and guns as well, because in, in some ways, uh, Ida B. Wells and um, mm-hmm. others, you know, were uh, Martin Luther King, even for a period of time, was a gun owner. And then he got rid of it. And he said, uh, I can't use the same weapon as, as my oppressors and had a whole lot of, uh, to say about guns and violence in general. Yeah. So here's a stat that you give. You say that fewer than 1,600 verified instances of defensive gun use happen every year in the United States compared to 118,000 people in any given year who are shot or, this is another important part, shoot themselves. And so the number is substantially lower. But for me, I can think of two times that people that I know in my family that have had to resort to you know, pulling a weapon in a time of self-defense. And um, you see a number and go, well, 600 is pretty low. But when you think of, oh, that's so-and-so who might not be here if they don't grab a gun in a a situation like that, it goes, well, I I get that fear shouldn't motivate us. But in those moments you go, I'm sure glad they're still here. And if they didn't have a gun to pull and to de-escalate a situation, it sure could be a worse family reunion for us this year. And so how do we process these, like, because everyone probably has a situation where they can say, well, this happened to this person I know and I care about, and I'm glad that there was a weapon around. How do we balance that? 
Yeah, well, one, one of the things that's uh, tricky with these is that some of the studies, when they say defensive use of a gun, does it mean that they just pulled it out, that they said, I've got a gun in my house, or did yeah, they yeah. actually use it? So it's, it's a, it's, it gets a little blurry, but this is what we know, is that a gun in the home is more likely to be used to hurt someone that we love than it is to, to protect them. Um, a, a gun in the home being used for, for um, suicide or for an accidental death, you know. Um, and what was interesting to me is researching some of this is that there are a whole lot of things that are just as effective defense mechanisms as guns. Um, um, uh, uh, having a cell phone or um, mace, mace or things yeah. like that. Yeah, we're, we're just as effective as guns. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that, that um, at the end of the day, part of what we would say is just how, how can we do a better job at protecting life and why do we have so much resistance to that? You know, even things that outside of laws, things like... Um, fingerprint technology that could allow us to have smart guns like we have smart you know yep. phones and and um if a gun operated off of a fingerprint then you know it would probably save a lot of lives lost to suicide and stolen guns couldn't be used as e easily but there's this kind of um uncompromising polarization in our country and that's what we're trying to find some common ground you know and say hey maybe some reasonable people could save some lives if we want to yeah i, I think that's part of it and, and and again i always think and i say this a lot on the podcast is i feel like what the church's prophetic witness in such a divided and polarized political uh setting is is that we can have conversations that we can have a higher commitment to the, the the Eucharist to the table to the sacraments than what we do to our the party that we vote for and if we have that sort of higher commitment then maybe we can create opportunities for conversations like that where there can be compromise on both sides there there can be a, a willingness to listen and to understand where someone else has come from I feel like that's what the church hopefully could offer really in a in a in a tangible way for our community right now I do too and I think for a lot of us we we suffer not from a compassion problem, but from a relational problem um, or geographical problem when it comes to gun violence. And we like we can remain a little bit distant from that um, until, you know, that when it affected Sandy Hook and it affected Parkland and um, people, you know, kids that look like our kids, suddenly it gets on our radar. But the fact is that like African-American kids are 10 times more likely to die from gun violence than white kids. It's the number one cause of death of African-American kids. It's number two for all kids. But I think, like, when you look at that, after Sandy Hook, something happened, you know, and people said never again, and then it's happened again and again. You know, we've had almost 2,000 mass shootings since then. So, and, and for me as a Christian, too, I um, I think there's plenty of reasonable arguments for using justified violence. I think you can look at history and look at stories and say violence worked in this case. It failed in this case. You can do, say the yeah. same of nonviolence. You know, it worked. It failed. But in the end, for a lot of us that choose Jesus, the question is, which looks the most like Christ? And yeah. I think the gun and the cross give us two really different versions of power. And even our instinct, you know, Peter picked up a sword to protect Jesus and Jesus scolded him and healed the guy he wounded, you know, and the early Christians understood that as the final triumph over our weapons. And they said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us, uh, because if ever there was a case to use violence to protect the innocent, 
Peter had the best case there ever was. And when you look at the first two, three hundred years of Christianity, it's remarkably nonviolent and, and holds to this truth that for Christ we can die, but we cannot kill. And I think that's really um, the, the question that needs to surface for those of us that call ourselves Christians are, you know, can we follow this this beautiful command of loving our enemies while preparing to kill them? Can we um, follow the turn the other cheek and and the NRA stand your ground? These are kind of very di- diametrically, they're different. <laughs> yeah, 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 they're different. Uh, I mean, that's so right, because there are definitely arguments for what works, and you can make arguments on both sides. And when that's my only you know, litmus test for what is right and wrong of what works, uh, I, I can get to one conclusion, but if it's what looks most like Jesus, it's, it's a different direction. And it's a direction that I don't always want to go because last time I checked, I really don't want to carry my cross daily and deny myself. <laughs> I really want to protect myself. I'd rather carry a shield than a cross. And uh, yeah, so we're stuck there. So you have this line that every Christian must concede that the Bible is a higher moral authority than the constitution. And yeah, that, I mean, I, I can say that in practice, um, but then what I'd rather do is come up with these sort of games where I say, well, you know, Jesus is talking about a certain part of life, not all of life. And if I can just, you know, say, well, you know, Jesus has a great message for what the church is supposed to be, but then the real world, we have to act differently and we have to do what works. Yeah. I mean, and I think this is one of the fundamental flaws in a lot of our, I mean, I, I, no one wants to die. You know, the, the call to like come and die doesn't exactly draw a crowd. You know, as, as Father Dan Berrigan, he used to say, uh, if you want to be a Christian, you better look good on wood. Like that's, that's, that's <laughs> not like, whoa, sign me up. You wow. Know? That's terrible. But that's, that's why I think we end up, um, you know, uh, uh, saying, well, Jesus, you know, yeah, Jesus is, um, love your enemy. That was good for inner person. That's good for my neighbor who gets on my nerves, you know, but that's not talking about nations or wars or the NRA or anything like that. And in fact, Jerry Falwell recently was asked, you know, uh, the president of Liberty University, he, he was asked about Jesus. He, he said, how do you reconcile your love for Jesus with your support for Trump and, and policies that seem to be anti-Jesus? And he said, I, this is a quote, I don't look to Jesus when it comes to forming my political beliefs. In a sense, Jesus is very irrel- impractical to the world we live in. And I, th- I think that's, that's a dangerous place to be, you know, because I don't, I don't think when Jesus said, love your enemies, he was uh, ignoring the fact that the disciples would be fed the beasts and they would be like hung upside down on crosses. Like, like evil was very real in his world, just as it is in ours. Well, I definitely have the same thing inside of me that makes me want to not look to Jesus because I understand that I, I don't want to look good or bad on wood. I don't want to, you know, face the evils of this world. And I have to trust that, you know, resurrection is uh, the final word and that this story isn't the end, but it's just the end of the chapter and that the end of the story is different. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I get why someone would want to say that. Um, I, I, I don't think Jesus wants us to say that, but I get it. And... These conversations, you use a phrase in the book, uh, prophetic imaginations. I, I feel like Walter Win- Wink has said something like that, too. Or, well, Walter Brueggemann, yeah. Is yeah, it Brueggemann? Wrote, uh, yeah, he wrote the, One of the uh, Walters. One of those Walters. <laughs> he wrote the prophetic imagination. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, he's been a, a big a big champion of all of this uh, and, and endorsed our book and everything, but he's a good friend. But one of the things he says is that sometimes we 
misunderstand the prophets, and we think the biblical prophets were trying to predict the future, um, but they were actually trying to change the present. They were trying to name um, where we're at so that we can build the future God wants for us. And that's one of the things that we love about the, the biblical vision of beating swords into plows is that it ends by saying nation will not rise up against nation and people will study violence no more. But that vision begins with the people, um, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. You know, it's not the politicians that lead the way to peace, but it's the people that lead the politicians to peace. So that's yeah. what we're we're going after, you know, and, and it, it is a matter of, of faith, I think, going do we really believe in the Sermon on the Mount as much as we believe in the Second Amendment? Do, you know, do we really believe that God will deliver us or do we need a Glock? Hmm. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, Walter Wink's line that I was trying to uh, come up with was a line that uh, violence... The other Walter. Yeah, the other Walter. Not to be confused with Walter White, who would have a completely <laughs> different tone. Uh, but Wink's the stuff... He says, you know, violence is a, is a failure to imagine. That you can't, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you can't imagine anything different. And, you know, one of the things I appreciate about the book is you're trying to give us this picture of what, what could be different. Uh, I, I know there, isn't there a, a video or a movie that's a feature film or some sort that you have been working on that goes in, that coincides with the Beating Guns book? Yeah, man. Actually, there is. Our, our friend uh, Rex Harson has been creating a, a film that has, uh, goes along with the book. So it's, uh, it's Beating Guns. And, and it, here's the thing. It comes out, uh, it may come out after your podcast, I don't know, but it comes out Easter weekend, which is also the 20th anniversary of Columbine. So you talk about like life and death being intricately, you know, kind of up against each other in this world, like Easter weekend, Columbine. And so that's when he released the film. Mm-hmm. By the time this comes out, you know, it'll probably be out there, but we, we would love people to watch it. We're trying to get it out um, on Vimeo and other other platforms as, as widely as possible. So it's either free or cheap. Um, but it's got a lot of people that have been on your podcast that are in the film too and has conversations between gun owners. And uh, there's one gun owner and Brian McLaren that have a great conversation, you know, and uh, people that have been directly affected. Because I, I think that's what we've got to keep moving towards are the people who this is um, – not just an issue to the debate, but it's um, something they've survived or something that's you know impacted their family. And um, so whether that's suicide or homicide, or we, we had uh, one guy that came and beat on a gun and he said he beat it 18 times at the Fords the other night. And he said, that's for the 18 years of life of the young man who's, who I, I killed. Wow. Um, so, I mean, more than anything, we're trying to go deeper to the heart of this and uh, see some hearts healed and, uh, see some lives saved, man. Hmm. Well, I appreciate the way that uh, y- your voice is out there and trying to give us uh, something different to listen to than what seems to be just kind of the the rote talking past each other, but actually trying to understand and listen and learn and, and try to give us a different picture. So uh, very complicated subject, but I'm glad your voice is in the middle of it. And uh, the book is entitled Beating Guns. And uh, so finally now, when you're with all your friends who've been on my podcast, you can finally say, I've been on it too. So congratulations. I'm, I, I'm glad. I have made it. Yes. I've made it. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry <laughs> awesome. it's taken so long. I know you felt left out and excluded, but I want you to know it's not, it's not that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not you, it's me. It was my fault. Thanks. No, it's awesome. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks, bro. All the best, Make man. sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>